0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. If you would, uh, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We will be reading verses 1 through 4. If you don't have your Bibles, the passage should be up on the screen. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Logan. We do have redemption kids this morning, so if it serves you, parents, we have redemption kids for ages two to four, and then five to nine. Thank you, Layla, Erica, and I think Jen for serving our kids this morning. So many littles, so many littles. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, We've got a little bit of, how shall I say it, uh, house cleaning. Business to attend to first. Before we get into today's message, uh, I got to circle back to something that I said uh, last week. I went off script at one point. It's usually a dangerous endeavor for me. Like you don't, know, I don't expect you to know my sermon preaching process. But I like write out every single word. It's a manuscript, right? It amounts to like a mini, you know, book or whatever booklet. And I had said at one point that. The angels worship us, and that is false, as I, as I teach the 7th and 8th graders um, class. That's heresy, Patrick, if you're familiar with Lutheran satire. That is not true. Uh, we join the angels in worshiping Jesus. Uh, I'm not worthy of anyone's worship. Uh, you're not either, sorry. Um, just for the record, I just want to stay. So, some people came to me afterwards like, I wrote that down. I just need you to clarify. And I'm like, I said What? Like, are you kidding me? Like, I had no. And I went back and I and I looked at the tape and I'm like, oh my goodness, copy and cut or cut and edit, you know. So, anyways, just to clarify that in case you wrote that down and you thought I was going crazy, so uh, maybe going crazy, but at least I'm not not on that point. Now on to Hebrews two uh, verses one to four, and then next week we'll actually get back into talking about the angels. Right, uh, this passage this morning is kind of bookend between this conversation of what is this relationship between between Jesus and, and the angels, and what, is, what does that matter, and why is the author of Hebrews constantly pointing us back to why Jesus is greater than the angels, so we'll get back into that, but this morning we have a warning and an exhortation. Uh, whoever the author of Hebrews is, he is a, he is a, a skilled preacher. He rep- repeatedly shows us the, the supremacy of Christ. If you read you know Hebrews straight through, you, you constantly see the, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He's constantly getting us to lift up our face and look to Jesus. And through all that, he, he weaves in this reality that we live the Christian life. And it's hard sometimes, and we need warnings. And that's kind of where we're at today, this, this warning that's getting woven in. So I'm going to pray um, so that I be faithful for what I say Um, because I need that, and then uh, we'll get into today's message. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're good and gracious, and uh, this morning the task at hand is for me to faithfully preach your word, and so we come under the authority of your word, O God. Lord, I don't pray that with words because it's the right thing to pray. I truly mean that. We come under your word. We come under the authority of what you've already spoken. What you continue to speak. And Father, I trust that in the power of the Spirit, you will minister to our hearts, our minds, indeed our very lives. Be with us. I pray for my friends in front of me this morning. I trust that you're working in their life for their good and for the honor and glory of your great name. Amen. In today's passage, the the verse I think that jumps out right away is verse 1 of chapter 2. It is a warning. And the warning is kind of like meant to jerk you back into reality, especially if you've been coasting in your relationship with God. And and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. We've all been there where it's feel like I'm just coasting. Like, I'll, I'll raise my hand. We've all been there. And I think I can generalize and say that people do not love to receive personal warnings. You know, like generally speaking. Sometimes when someone receives a personal warning, they're like confronted with facts or truth. Uh, like if you eat donuts for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and I'm, not, I'm nothing against donuts, right? It's like the cake donuts or the other kind of donuts. I don't know. But if you eat it all day, and I say to you, hey, buddy, you're going to get type 2 diabetes if you continue to eat that way. I'm confronting, confronting you with the truth, with the facts. It's going to catch up with you. Uh, parents are accustomed to warning their children. When my kids were younger, Sharice and I would both do this, we would say, don't, don't touch the stove, Right? Even if we're not using the stove, just don't touch the stove because you, you never know when you move a pan after you've cooked, you might get burned. Like the warning is warranted, is it not? Don't touch the stove. And the wretched little sinners that we have, they're like, maybe if I just hover my hand over it. <laughs> right? They need the warning. They will burn their hand if they don't heed the warning. I mean, even as kids get older, I'm still giving them... Um, Warnings about different aspects of life. I've said this to my, my children. Uh, you, you are who you hang with, who you hang out with, right? Meaning the friends you choose will impact and sh- shape your life. So choose your friends carefully. Like, in that statement is a warning. Listen, warnings and exhortations are not meant to bring about shame and discouragement. They're not. I do not want my kids to burn their hand on the stove. I want them to choose their friends wisely. Warnings can point us into a direction that is actually hopeful and life-giving. Hopeful and life-giving. Now, here's another example of giving and receiving a warning, which really does connect with today's passage. I think, and I think Pastor Rob would understand this as well because he coaches band, right? Back in the day before I, before I met Sharice, I did a lot of coaching. I love, I love coaching sports. haven't done it in a while, but there was a time, there was a season where I just did it all the time. Youth, baseball, varsity, girls, softball. I was a student assistant coach on a college basketball team. Just if I could coach it, I'd go do it. Loved it. Um, in all these situations, my goal was to encourage and warn athletes, especially as they got older, And they're in the high school and in college. I would encourage them to work hard, maintain a positive attitude, and always strive to improve. Just get better at your craft. I would also warn them that if they did not work hard, and if they got into trouble outside of, you know, games and practices, their game, their craft, will drift. If you don't stick to it, you drift for most athletes, the, the moment their effort subsides is when you see the negative effects. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some crazy, talented people who, like, pick something up, and they're just automatically good at it for life. I hate those people. But most of us aren't like that. we got to work at it, and we got to continue to work at it so that we don't drift. My heart is actually encouraged when I read the book of Hebrews, because it does fixate on the person and work of Jesus Christ, but the book of Hebrews, as I said, also contains warnings that actually keep us focused on Christ. There are five warnings in Hebrews, kind of like what we're seeing today, and this is the first one. There are aspects of Hebrews or of this passage that I'm not going to talk about, that we'll get to, like apostasy. So that's going to come down the road here. But today I'm really focusing on what it means for us to not drift. To not drift in our faith. The first hint that we need to pay attention to so that we do not drift is this word, therefore, in verse, in verse 1 of chapter 2. The term, therefore, dia in the Greek, is a linking preposition that connects with what we've already read in Hebrews 1 with what we're about to see in Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 4. What do we see in Hebrews 1? God has spoken through the Son. The Son has the supreme authority to speak. And the Son is greater than the angels. Therefore, Pay attention to your faith, to your life. Because of everything that we read in Hebrews 1, therefore. Pay attention to what you set your heart upon. Pay attention to where you, to what you place in front of your eyes and what goes into your ears. Because if you do not pay attention, you will drift away from God, who we read about in chapter 1 of Hebrews. two secondary points in this passage. So the primary point being like, do not neglect your faith, do not drift. And there's two secondary points that reinforce, like rebar, that primary point about drifting. I'm going to point them out and then I'm going to work backwards or frontwards actually to verse 1 again about the, this warning of not drifting. The warning against drifting away from God is supported in verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. We read, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression, or think sin, or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, I've got to tell you that whoever, whoever the Holy Spirit used to write the book of Hebrews, he gave us no favors in interpreting this particular passage. It's actually tricky. Like the Greek's not confusing, it's just actually very technical. But here's what I think is going on here in verses 2 to 3. The author of Hebrews uses a communication or preaching technique called lesser to greater. This will make sense here in a moment. Lesser to greater. Um, it's actually a rabbinic technique that was used in Jewish synagogues. So if a Jew was sitting here, he'd be like, oh, I know that. If something is true in the lesser situation, then in a greater situation, the truthfulness of something is highlighted even more along with the implications. For example, again, lesser degree. There's a technique used right here in verses 2 to 3. We all drink water. Just have a little right here. It's because it hydrates you, right? Praise God for water. We drink water because it hydrates us. That is a true statement. But this statement along with the implications, is highlighted even more if you are wandering in the desert for days. If you're wandering in the desert for days without water, all of a sudden you pay attention to the reality, to the truthfulness that water hydrates you and you want it so bad. The water can save your life. You need water to survive. Like when you wake up in the morning, you do not think about filling up your water bottle. You just kind of do it. But when you're in the desert, it's highlighted. It's highlighted. It's highlighted like crazy. Here's how the technique is used in Hebrews uh, 2, verses 2 to 3. The message of God has been declared by angels in the Old Testament. That's what we read in verse 2. It was the angels who were with Moses when the Ten Commandments were given at, at Mount Sinai. Acts 7 and Galatians 3 strongly imply this particular interpretation. The author of Hebrews makes the same implication. And under the old covenant, sin and disobedience of God's people received their retribution. They were disciplined. God disciplined the ones he loves, and God disciplined his covenant people. There's a reason why God sent Israel into exile. If Israel is going to continue to worship idols, then God is going to use the Babylonians and the Assyrians to take over the land that God gave his chosen people. And God did exile his people, right? God judged his people before the incarnation, life, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How much more on our side of the cross should we be warned? On this side of the cross, how much more should we be warned? On this side of the cross, how much more should we be warned not to neglect salvation? God judged his people under the old covenant, lesser. But on this side of the cross, we need to be more diligent not to neglect our salvation, greater. Here's a little more insight into verses 2 and 3. The word neglect shows up in verse 3. And it is the same word that we read in Matthew 22, 5. And it's the parable of the wedding feast. Uh, in this parable, there is a wedding feast for a son. Invitations are sent out to all the right people, all the, all the high people in society, all the businessmen, the farmers at that time, the high people of society. But they all paid no attention. They neglected the invitation. Therefore, Jesus sends out invitations one more time, or at least the parable Jesus says one more invitation is sent out for the Son. But this time, the lowliest of society are invited to the wedding feast. The wedding feast was then full of guests. A point that is made is that people who paid no attention to the invitation were more interested in their everyday doings than they were interested in Christ. I have one more supporting point to make before really dialing into the danger of drifting here. I spent time on this topic on the outset of this sermon series, and we see the theme reappear here in verse 3 to 4. God has and continues to reveal himself in creation. The purpose of divine revelation is for God's people to hear what God is speaking. We read that, me- we, we, re- excuse me, we read that the message of God was declared first by the Lord... And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to God's will. So there's something revelatory going on here. I mean, are you familiar with um, the Thomas Jefferson Bible? Uh, Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States. Uh, the Thomas Jefferson Bible was Jefferson's attempt. To remove the revelation of God from, from the Bible. So he took the Holy Bible, just grabbed it, grabbed a pair of scissors, and any time revelation appeared, he just kind of take it out. So miracles, for example. Jesus walking on water, gone. Uh, feeding of 5,000 with a couple of loaves, gone. Resurrection, gonzo. That's the Thomas Jefferson Bible. What Jefferson was doing, whether he realized it or not, is that he wanted to remove the revelation of God from history. From history. He wanted the morality of the Bible without God, who decreed what is moral and immoral. Verses 3 and 4 push back against Jefferson and helps us to celebrate that we serve a God who is active in history and in the present. Because this is true, we have been given a positive reason to resist the temptation to drift from our faith. Let's not breeze by the fact that God has used and still is using signs, wonders, and miracles to testify to Jesus Christ and his message. Signs, wonders, and miracles reaffirm the presence of God's kingdom on earth. Like These three terms are similar, but the combination of the three makes a solid point. The term sign means that human beings are trying to discern miracles. The Greek word for wonders conveys the astonishing work of God in history. And the term miracles is supposed to feature the power of God. I mean, Christians always pray this, and rightly so. God is all-powerful. Seminarians throw around the word omnipotent. But why do, you, why do we say that God is all-powerful? God has chosen to demonstrate his power in time and in history. Signs, wonders, and miracles done by God are not only a New Testament phenomenon. In Exodus, I'm actually in Exodus right now, going through it really, really, really slowly, and I'm at the point, I mean, when I say, when I mean slowly, I mean like super slow, and I'm at the point where God calls Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh and then we got plagues coming, right? So in Exodus, the Lord performed many signs and wonders through his servants, Moses and, and Aaron. You might recall that the Egyptians and the Israelites realized that the God of Moses and Aaron is Lord over history. All parties involved, including Pharaoh, witnessed the power of the one true God. Pharaoh did not accept the one true God, but he did witness his power. In history, God fulfilled his covenant by liberating Israel from Egypt. Like the Old Testament, in the New Testament, signs and wonders and miracles testify to Jew, Greek, Christian, and non-Christian. So here is why, here is what we see in our passage. For the believer, signs, wonders, miracles can reinforce faith. Remembering the works of God keeps us from, neg- from the neglect of drifting For the unbeliever, signs, wonders, and miracles can be used by the Holy Spirit to cause a person to believe in Jesus Christ and his message. Now, back to the warning. Those are the two kind of like pieces of rebar that reinforce this need for a warning. The warning, do not neglect or you will drift away. As I said, we need warnings. They serve a positive purpose. Warnings are not designed to rob people of hope, but to steer people away from danger in order to preserve them so they, may, they might inherit what has been promised by God. The word uh, drift away is the same word used to describe a ring that kind of drifts away from a person's finger. That's one way that this particular word is used. Uh, it's also used in, in nautical terms, so if you're, a boater, you're into boating. Drifting away is like a boat coming to shore, but it's not directed by the rudder. The boat drifts away with the wind. The warning teaches us, a, like a, I think, a sobering truth. Saying a prayer is not the golden ticket to heaven. Prayer's important. Don't get me wrong. That's not the golden ticket. But perseverance and faith always follows, perseverance always follows faith. As theologian Thomas Schreiner points out, he says this, the New Testament nowhere teaches that an initial acceptance of of the saving message is sufficient without perseverance in faith. What I am not saying is that the moment you prayed to God for salvation, that that moment was meaningless. Holy Scripture is not saying that your profession of faith does not matter. I surrendered to Christ in my early 20s, and you better believe that I said a prayer of surrender to God. But perseverance always follows faith. The fight against drifting follows faith. We read in 1 Chronicles, Look to the Lord and His strength. Seek his face always. You have to be active in seeking God. And then, in the letter to the Philippians, Paul confesses, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal. I press on, Paul says. I move forward for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I could quote a hundred passages that are on this theme, but here's one more, and it's actually a sneak peek of Hebrews 3. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm until the end. One of the primary reasons why so many people We'll we'll throw this in the opinion category of Sean Powers. One of the reasons why so many people in America drift away from Christ and away from the church is because they were told, close your eyes, bow your head, and say a prayer. Functionally, like functionally speaking, that might have been the beginning and the end of their salvation. That's not theologically true but I hope you understand what I mean. No one ever told them that they must fight like crazy to not drift away from the faith. Bow your head, say your prayer, and that was it. But in reality, we have to, they had to have been told, you, now you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to fight for this faith every single day, every single moment, by God's grace. You got to fight. So many people have been offered a cheap grace. Now, cheap grace, it uses the same language as true Christianity, but cheap grace focuses focuses on how you can be saved from perdition, from hell. And the focus is not on Jesus Christ. Costly grace. Blood-bought, costly grace. Focuses like a laser on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. A person who is consumed with costly grace is humbled because they see what the cross of Jesus Christ accomplished for them. A person who's been given costly grace sees no alternative but to follow their Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. The person who swims in the ocean of costly grace, guess what? They know the danger of drifting. They know that. They know the danger of drifting. The notion that a person can recognize the danger of drifting is a grace in itself. Like if you, if you recognize that for your life, Sean Powers can drift away. Come the out of every blessing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. I know that about myself. If you know that as well about yourself, that is a grace. In God's providence, um, I was sent a short clip from a friend about another pastor explaining why so many people walk away from the Christian faith. And he opens up, he says, I'm preaching this on May 7th. And I thought to myself, I'm preaching something else on May 7th. <laughs> I, got a re- I got a response to what you're going to say to your people and what I'm going to say to you. But here's what he said. Here's what he's preaching this morning, May 7th. Three reasons why People drift away or walk away from Christianity. Reason number one, according to this pastor. People drift from the church because there is sexual, spiritual, or emotional abuse in the church. I'll address that. Number two, people drift when there is hypocrisy by those in authority. Number three, people drift when those in authority say that unbelievers are unsaved or, or they go to hell, Right? That people, that there's two categories of people, believers and unbelievers and unbelievers, those who are not saved go to hell. And So people walk away for that reason. First, note that all these reasons have a similar theme. The reason for walking away from Christianity has to do with a person in authority, which tells me that the ultimate trust and faith are being placed in the wrong person. The last point might be true, that people walk away from Christianity because there's a bifurcation between the saved and the unsaved, and there's implications for that, right? There's consequences, but you can't read the Bible and not conclude that it tells us that there are only two groups of people in the world, ultimately, those who follow Christ and those who do not follow Christ. So that's just a theological difference. But here's my response to the first two reasons. Let me be very clear here, because this whole deconstruction movement is going crazy. And I'll define that term in another day, (laughs) Ryan. It is uncool, unfortunate, and sinful if church leaders abuse authority. Period. Hard stop. Hard stop, right? When there is actual and not perceived abuse of authority, there must be consequences. I have no problem with that. God will judge more severely pastors and church leaders. That's James 3.1. Like that's me. I will be judged more severely. That's weighty. I'm not here to defend against legitimate sinful actions of church leaders. But I am here to say that the sinful actions of another person does not negate the faithfulness of God. The sinful actions of another person does not negate truth. I praise God that even when Abraham made a poor choice to sleep with his servant Hagar, God is still faithful. I praise God that even though King David is a murderer and an adulterer, God is still faithful. God is still faithful. Here's the reason why people drift away from Christianity. Like anecdotally, I know what he's saying, but ultimately at the end of the day, here's why people drift away. A person drifts away when they cease to believe and listen to the Son of God. That is Hebrews 1. That's all of Hebrews 1. We need the warning not to drift because life is full of ups and downs, Life is full of people who will disappoint you or will not meet your expectations. Life goes sideways when tragedy hits. Therefore, we need to fight to keep our focus on Christ. So if the warning to not drift from Christ and his message said that's the warning, what can help blunt the temptation to drift? That temptation's always lurking around the corner. What can we do when there is a leader who morally fails, or there's a divorce in the marriage, or there's a job loss, what do we do? Here are practical steps to heed the warning to not drift. Because we all face the temptation, but we all can take steps to ensure that we do not drift. And if there is a slight wind, when the boat comes to shore, comes to the dock, Here's how you get your hand back on the wheel to control the rudder. Here's just five practical steps you can take to stay focused on Christ, and what I'm about to say is actually pretty obvious, but I think worth stating. Number 1, center your life on the word. Number 2, grow in your theology. Number 3, embrace Christian community. Number 4, learn to be fervent in prayer number 5 engaged in the great commission before i get into those those five individually i think it's worth saying that when the first 3 when someone disengages the first 3 regardless of circumstances i see drifting as a pastor i see drifting and oftentimes another excuse is used as to why they drifted away. The pastor did this. The church split. I lost my job. Someone, unfortunately, tragically died, right? But in reality, it's those first three as to why someone actually drifts away. I know people who've gone through the hardest seasons of life that you could not dream up, who've stayed firm in the faith, who have not drifted because they were grounded in God's word. They had good theology and they, re- and they refused to not disconnect from the church. I could add more to the list but let's just look at these 5. I know it seems cliché to say this in our circles but we need to center our lives on the word of God. The first step to prevent drifting in your faith is God's word. God's word is a Hoover, is the Hoover dam holding back the temptation, all the water to drift. We have seen in Hebrews that we need to center our lives on the Son and what the Son has spoken, right? In Hebrews 2, 3, the Lord preached and then his message was handed down to the apostles and then they handed it down to the next generation. The message is now contained in what we call the Holy Bible. On Sunday morning, we try to create a word-centered liturgy through and through with Ryan's help. Through and through, a word-centered liturgy. A word-centered liturgy that is ultimately Christ-centered, So I I hope how we shape our liturgy encourages you to shape your life Monday to Saturday on the Word of God. I mean, a couple weeks ago, um, someone contacted me about using various resources in his devotion, and I'm always thrilled when approached about cultivating a person's relationship with God through the Word. So I offered four to five different resources, everything from a catechism uh, to a, a Bible journal book, which I'm currently using, and a daily liturgy book. Now, I'll speak for myself. I know from experience that it can be difficult to wake up every morning, open the Bible, and read. I get it. I really do. It's not lost on me, and I'm a pastor, right? I'm a pastor. Intellectually, we all know that we need to, read, need to be reading the Bible, but life is busy. Kids want our attention. There's always work to do. The to-do list just continues to grow. I get the tension, which is why we need the warning from God, why we need Hebrews 2.1. We need that warning because life is busy. Hebrews 2:1 can serve as a wake-up call to pause and consider how God's word is prioritized in your life. Right? At the end of the day, if I'm in a counseling situation and someone approaches me, like, Pastor Sean, my, my relationship with God is dry. And there's lots of reasons for that, of course, but one reason, the first thing I would ask is like, are you prioritizing God's word in your life? Like, what does that look like? Where's that on the, on the priority chart? I mean, if it's down there like at nine or 10, then I'm like, you gotta bump that up quite significantly. That's the first place I would go. The second avenue you can pursue to prevent yourself from drifting is to grow in your understanding of theology. I've written on, on a statement, and, I'll, and I tell it to my students, and I'm gonna tell you You're all a theologian. Everyone in this room is a theologian. Every single one of you. Regardless of age, gender, you're all a theologian. Everyone. Everyone thinks and ponders actively or passively about God. Human beings instinctively think about God because all human beings are made in God's image. The real question is, what kind of effort are you putting in to see your knowledge of God grow Or Go deep and wide. Are you a good theologian? And I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but are you like a lazy theologian? Like The reason why I uh, made the decision several years ago to move this church into a confessional direction is to help facilitate the breadth and depth of theology in your life. We have a confession of faith and not a statement of faith that was copied and pasted from ABC Church down the street. We have a confession of faith so that as you read the Bible or you hear the word preached on Sunday morning, you see the depth of God's word. That's what we call theology. What I'm not saying is that you need a college degree in theology to understand God. I know people who have a PhD in theology who do not know God. There are plenty of them out there. All you need is the Holy Spirit and your Bible. There are other tools you can use for sure. But if you start there, you'll be headed into the right direction. The trajectory will start going that way. The reading of God's word and sound theology are excellent solutions to keep yourself from drifting. Number three. The third way to keep yourself from drifting... Is to lean into Christian community. There's various ways one can be involved in Christian community. So I'm not going to talk about all the programmatic ways. And we're actually going to bump into this in Hebrews 10. Uh, but I'm unapologetic when I say there's no such thing as a homeless Christian. All Christians are designed by God for community. Period. We are gathered here this morning to celebrate Christ in in a Christian community that we call the church. When we embrace Christian community on Sunday morning or any other day of the week, right, that ends in Y, there are opportunities to encourage one another, to bear burdens, to pray together, and to love each other. Again, I'm stating the obvious, but it is hard to be encouraged by someone else if you are not present, if you're not leaning in. And I would also add, you have gifts to share to the body of Christ. You have gifts that others can benefit from. But those gifts, people can only benefit if you're willing to lean into Christian community. Lean in because God designs you for Christian community. The Christian community that focuses on Christ can keep you from drifting. Fourth, I'll be shorter with these last two. Learn to be fervent in prayer. Prayer is simply communicating with God. You communicate with God in prayer so that you can understand His will. His will. Oftentimes we pray and we're like, I want God to understand my will. Well, He already understands your will. He understands your will. He sees your heart. You pray to understand God's will for your life. Remember when I said earlier, you are who you hang with? Well, If you're hanging out with God, (laughs) you will grow by the grace of God, and that will keep you from drifting. Last one, but not least, engage the Great Commission. The Great Commission, according to our Lord, is to make disciples by proclaiming the message of Christ, and then it's to teach the commands of Christ. And as a credo-baptist, after the Lord saves someone, we're gonna go find some water. (laughs) We're gonna get some baptizing going on here, right? People do not drift away from God because of a bad actor, right? Some knucklehead, some knucklehead pastor, some knucklehead Christian did that dumb thing, and so another person drifted away. That's a bad example. Do not get me wrong. (laughs) That can be equally condemned. But people ultimately drift because their relationship with God has not been cultivated. Cultivated. All these practical steps are meant to keep you focused on Christ. Keep you focused on Jesus. I know that none of us do these five areas perfectly, myself included. You should not be discouraged if you think you do not have the perfect prayer life, right? Like if if you've got this Bible reading plan, you're ready to go, and you missed two days, don't get discouraged. Do not get discouraged. Please, do not. Just get back on the boat. And keep going. Get back on the train. Just keep moving forward. Just keep moving forward. Have a hard time reading chapters. Start with verses. Start in the Psalms. That's what I do. When like, I'm going through a season where it's like, oh, everything's so busy, I just go to the Psalms and I just read them slowly. I even go to the familiar ones, the ones I know that I love, the ones I know that always minister to my heart. Psalm 23, Psalm 51. and For me, Psalm 24. Psalm 42, 43, Psalm 19, Psalm 2. I mean, I can rattle them off all day. I go to those because I know they minister to my heart. So do not get discouraged. Growing is the point. We grow by the grace of God. That is the point. Growing in your relationship with God is how you keep from drifting. The worst possible outcome of your faith is actually stagnation. It's apathy. It's not caring anymore. That's the scary. That's the scary part. When you're there, but if you're fighting the good fight, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Even even if it feels like you're taking like a baby step forward, my question is: Is it forward? Well, yeah. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. By God's grace. Praise God. It's essential to run the race that God has marked out for you. We read in 2 Timothy 4:7. I have fought the good fight of faith. You can tell this is a man who's at the end of his life. I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You fight, you run, you run until the end keeping the faith. Whatever life throws at you, you keep moving forward. As we read from C.S. Lewis in the last battle, we continued onward and upward, onward and upward. And once again, later in the book of Hebrews, we read, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we'll get to Hebrews 11, we'll tell you what that means, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Let's run with endurance. I'm not a runner. I don't know if you knew that. Like, this body doesn't scream running, but I do run. I run modest half marathons, right? And you get to the middle of that thing, maybe mile 20 or whatever, and you're just thinking, you're thinking to yourself, I made a lot of poor choices. <laughs> right? But you know what gets you through those final f- few miles? Knowing there's a finish line that I can cross. I might puke at the end, but I finished. (laughs) I finished. I finished because of verse 2 of what we read in Hebrews 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's how you get to the finish line. I'm actually not fixating on the finish line as much as I'm fixating on the one who's at the finish line, Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews knows the race seems long, but keeping your gaze upon Jesus is how you keep yourself from drifting. Now, I'm not going to ask you if you read your Bible this morning. I'm not going to ask you the last time you shared the gospel. I mean, unless you want me to. Accountability is good. If you want it, I'll give it to you. Redemption Hill is not a place where we like to check the boxes. Sure, we want to be a church where people walk alongside one another in pursuit of Christ, but the grace of God must infuse everything we do. Redemption Hill is the place where, by the grace of God, followers of Jesus Christ run the race with their eyes fixed on Christ. That's how you defeat the temptation to drifting. I trust that the Holy Spirit is doing a much better job of prodding you and convicting you of areas than I could ever do. Again, I don't mind accountability and things like that and transparency. That's good in Christian community. But let's not forget, the Holy Spirit is supremely better at that. What I can do, assuredly, is point you to Hebrews two verses one to four, and encourage you to take the warning seriously, take it seriously. I can implore you to ask yourself, what do I need to do by God's grace to stay focused on Jesus Christ? What do I need to do to ensure that I, that I do not neglect the salvation given to me by God? That's what I can do. And with that, I'll pray.